those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, it's Mexi. I'm just jumping on at the start of this episode because Maureen and I recorded this over over a week ago, a couple weeks ago, before all of these rebellions, these incredible, incredible rebellions have been sweeping not only the US, but also Canada and the globe. I think the sheer scale of what's going on right now is just completely unprecedented. And, you know, it's just been a complete roller coaster of emotions, I think, for everyone. Um, you know, excitement that this level of protest is going on right now. Um, excitement in a way that it's pretty much been mask off for, you know, police institutions, uh, for the state. Uh, for the prison industrial complex. And a lot of people now are kind of waking up to this idea of abolitionism, of defunding the police and of alternatives to policing. Um, we're having a community forum about that in Toronto very soon. And so that's all really exciting. But obviously, you know, that excitement is tempered with a lot of uh, sadness and anger and fear, um, fear about the backlash that, you know, we're obviously facing, um, fear for all the people that are out and who are being physically disabled, uh, being killed right now by the police. There is a ton of extremely disturbing footage going around about the violence that police are bringing to these protests. Um, and they're, they're actually killing people. They're actually fucking killing people. A woman just died last night because she was at a protest and she's asthmatic and she was gassed. She was literally gassed to death by the police. And, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, which is what this episode is going to be about today. It's about the coronavirus and the war rhetoric that the media and our leaders are using and the implications of that. Um, and in that we talk about how, you know, we're, we're calling this a war or our leaders are calling this a war against the coronavirus. And yet somehow we have no money for it. <laughs> we have no, you know, there's nothing behind that war. We're not actually committed to fighting that war in any meaningful way. However, we have loads, loads of money, apparently, for the state and the police and the military to go to literal war against the people. An artist that I like on Instagram, uh, Mona Chalabi, I will link this in the show notes, posted something um, just a, a day ago that said, the cost of riot gear for one police officer totals $496. The cost of PPE for one healthcare worker totals $15.33. So what is their priority? I mean, obviously we know what their priority is, but you know, this is a pandemic. Uh, the coronavirus is a respiratory illness and they're out there gassing people, right? Um, and shooting people with rubber bullets, which are really serious in the eyes, blinding people. Um, I've seen a lot of reports of, you know, innocent homeless people that are just nearby that are getting uh, shot. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's really horrifying, but um, I mean, I think that 
this is this is a huge moment and and I am excited about the fact that you know a lot of my friends and family who are otherwise not political at all are really uh you know appalled at what's going on and their their eyes are open their ears are open their hearts are open they are now learning a lot more about prison abolitionism about why the police are awful, about what the police actually support, which is capital and the state, not the people. And so I think this is a huge, huge moment. So anyway, I don't know where this goes, but um, just major solidarity for everyone out in the streets. Um, I'm doing kind of more behind the scenes stuff because I am immunocompromised and don't want to go out um, in the protests. Um, but you know, be safe if you are out there. I'm going to play uh, a couple of clips here that are PSAs from the Channel Zero Network, which is a network of anarchist podcasts. And the first is about uh, safety at protests and how to stay safe and um, look out for yourself and your comrades while you're there, which is something that I, I think I want to do a full episode about at some point. Um, maybe I'll try and organize that this month because I think that would be really useful. Um, and the second is about jail support for your comrades. Um, and the fact that, you know, an action isn't over until all of your comrades are, are out of jail and hopefully their, their fines are being dealt with as well. So I will play those two clips and then I will, uh, lead us into, the episode for today. Keep in mind that this was uh, recorded before all of this started popping off. If you're a new patron, we will shout you out next time and we very much appreciate you. And lastly, just, uh, you know, we unfortunately, I mean, I'm tweeting about this all the time. Uh, so find that on, on Mexi uh, or my Facebook but um, yeah, unfortunately, we we couldn't be super up to date with what's going on because um, yeah, we're both dealing with a bunch of other things right now. But I will say, uh, if you want kind of really updated, uh, really amazing coverage of what's going on, check out the Benjamin Dixon Show. It's a podcast, and um, it's also up on YouTube. I will link it below because, yeah, those <laughs> those episodes have just been amazing, amazing since this all started. So I'll go ahead and play these PSAs from the Channel Zero Network, and uh, I will link them in the show notes as well if you'd like to share them with other people. And hopefully we can follow up on this stuff soon. Uh, and offer more of an in-depth episode about um, protest, how to protest effectively, um, and safety while you're out there. Because, uh, man, yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing what's going on, even in terms of um, technology, right? In, in Portland, I think it was, the police used jammers to make sure that nobody could film them. So everyone's, everyone's uh, film feed stopped at kind of the exact same moment as the police were were advancing on the crowd. So I think, yeah, I think this is something that we need to talk about in the future. Anyway, stay safe out there. Major solidarity to everyone on the ground. And I hope you enjoy this episode. As protests heat up, the Channel Zero Network has some reminders on how to stay safe while out in the streets. Bring buddies and don't let them out of the range of your voice. Write a legal aid number on your body so you can get help if you get arrested. Be sure to know your buddies' legal names and birthdays. You'll need these to help find them if they're arrested. 
When moving around, walk, don't run. Stick together. Turn off your phone while out in the streets to avoid surveillance of your location and so as not to have your unlocked phone taken by the authorities or other bad actors. Try your best not to stick out in a crowd. Cover up tattoos with clothing or body paint. Cops will use footage from the protest to try to identify you. Wear clothes that are good for moving quickly. Avoid wearing jewelry and wear closed-toed shoes. Wear your mask at all times, even if you're talking to someone, in order to guard yourself against surveillance, COVID-19, pepper spray, and tear gas. Avoid wearing contact lenses. Bring goggles of some kind in case of tear gas or pepper spray. Consider wearing bike helmets as police often cause head injuries with batons and other weapons. Don't take photos or videos of people doing anything illegal or with their faces uncovered. Whenever possible, film the cops, not the protesters. Only put water in your eyes. Don't use milk or baking soda or anything else. Clean water is the safest thing to use at a protest. If possible, bring a water bottle to drink from and a water bottle to flush out the eyes of any comrades who are maced or tear gassed. And white comrades are encouraged to follow the lead of black and brown comrades as they bear the brunt of state brutality. Follow Unicorn Riot and Channel Zero Network member It's Going Down for ongoing updates. The Channel Zero Network sends you all solidarity. Stay safe out there and never stop fighting for a better world. With protests continuing in cities all over the world, the Channel Zero Network has some reminders on how to support those who have been arrested and those who may be arrested in the coming days and weeks. Arrests are one tool cops use to repress mass movements. Arrests keep protesters off the streets during demonstrations. They scare people with the threat of court cases and potential prison sentences. Alone, we feel defenseless against the police and the courts. By providing jail and court support, we can push back against this repression from the moment our comrades are taken in to the end of their court case. Before heading out into the streets, make sure you and everyone you're with has a contact number written on their body. You'll need to get in touch with someone if you're arrested, and you most likely won't have your personal belongings with you. This number can be the National Lawyers Guild, a group you're currently involved with, or just their friend who's not at the protest. If you see someone getting arrested, call your legal support number with the arrestee's legal name and birthday. If you are in a large city, you may have to determine where they will be taken. Try to find the arresting officer's precinct or unit. This may determine where your comrade ends up. In smaller cities, everyone may go to the same place. If you expect more arrests, try to stay and observe. If not, you should head to the precinct and wait for the arrestee. Once at the precinct, use the legal name and birthday of the arrestee to ask the cops for the arrest number, charges, and where the arrestee will be taken or held. Keep anyone supporting you in a loop. Be prepared to wait many hours. Keep in touch with others and take turns waiting outside the precinct. In some cases, it may take the whole night, especially if there's been a mass arrest. From here, each city and state has different processes and different jargon. Connect with local organizers and read about local laws to learn what the process will be in your area. Here are some things you might encounter. Sometimes arrestees are released quickly with a notice that they'll need to show up in court at a later date. If this happens, take the contact info of the arrestee. You'll want to be ready to offer them court support in the future. 
Sometimes, Oreskes are charged before release. This is a longer process, usually called arraignment, which is a procedural court hearing to file charges and set bail. The court will assign a public defender for arraignments. Try to have a couple of friends attend the arraignment for support. Due to COVID-19, you may only be able to observe via video. Sometimes arrestees will have to post bail to be released. If bail is set, let the court officer know you're arranging payment and will be coordinating with the arrestee's lawyer. If you need support making bail, connect with local organizers. There may be a bail fund for protesters in your area. No matter what happens, always relay what's happening to other people offering support. Regardless of the legal situation the arrestee ends up in, you'll need to bring some things with you. People who are getting out may be exhausted or have trouble getting home. So bring snacks, water, aspirin, bus fare, transit cards, and cigarettes. If you have a friend being held, you can bring their favorite snacks. If you know the arrestee requires specific medication, make sure to bring that too. You'll also need water and snacks to sustain yourself. Bring external batteries for charging phones as you may be waiting many hours. If you can't stay and help with jail support, dropping off materials to those waiting can be a big help. Unfortunately, there is a high risk of exposure to COVID-19 while in an enclosed jail cell. Arrestees should consider self-quarantining and getting tested. For every street action and every viral video of arrests, there are dozens of people outside the spotlight supporting the movement. It's not over till everyone's safely gotten out of prison and everyone's beaten their charges. Check out Rebel Steps Jail Support episode at rebelsteps.com forward slash jail support for more tips and resources. And follow Unicorn Riot and Channel Zero Network member It's Going Down for more updates. The Channel Zero Network sends y'all solidarity. Stay safe out there and never stop fighting for a better world. Hey everyone, welcome to The Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi and Maureen. Maureen is back! Yay! <laughs> we got Maureen on the call. I'm so excited! I know, I'm so excited too. Everyone's been asking for you and yeah, wondering how you're doing. So yeah, maybe we'll maybe give a, a little update for the listeners. Well, you've been, I was going to say heading this ship, what not steering this ship remarkably yeah. well. I just am enjoying oh, listening you. to all the episodes of the podcast so much. <laughs> I'm like, this is great. This podcast is amazing and I'm doing no work. Oh, baby. Well, yeah. I miss but you. I'm so happy and, to be uh, here. The, list, the, listeners, the listeners definitely miss you. Aww. So yeah, what's, nice. what's been up? What's been up? Yeah. Well, you know. I'm quarantined and all. Quarantined. So not much, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I was quarantined in the countryside for like a couple months and I came back to mm-hmm. Paris a couple days ago. So that's mm-hmm. been quite an experience. Uh, I was just telling you yeah. before we started recording that I've been in one of the biggest cleaning frenzies of my life because... I, when I left, I left pretty much in a panic two months ago because the French government was like, everybody's going to be quarantined and it's going to be really intense for two months and, you know, you're not going to be allowed to leave. So probably very irresponsibly, a lot of us decided in cities decided to leave cities um, if, Mm -hmm. you know, my my parents live in the countryside. So I'm really lucky in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just spent some time with my mom and oh right I was saying this because since I left in a panic I decided to 
like deactivate my electricity and forgot that that meant that my fridge was also being unplugged. So it has just rotted it in its own juices for the past nine weeks. And I mm -hmm. was just every day thinking, oh my goodness, my fridge must be in the worst situation. My neighbors must think my rotting body <laughs> is disintegrating <laughs> in my apartment. <laughs> um, but luckily when I came back on the outside of the fridge, and I guess this is the whole point, fridges are airtight, so it didn't smell too bad, even though it had leaked a little bit. But man, mm -hmm. when I opened that refrigerator door, it was... Damn. <laughs> It was unlike anything I've seen or smelled before, I think. I think yeah. new new Damn. species have emerged from like the the disgusting growths Ugh. of the fridge. Anyway, oh. hope no one's eating while they're <laughs> listening to this, but it was really bad. Yeah. And yesterday I'm I spent grimacing. over 2 hours cleaning it. And it it's one of these like little mini fridges, you know, yeah. that college yeah, students have. Fridge. So mm -hmm. I can't even imagine if it was a big fridge. And it was relatively yeah. empty except for some like frozen bananas as the good vegan that I am. Um, yes. <laughs> but Get that nice cream. But yeah, and then so for the past two days, <clears throat> I guess the way that I made myself feel better about being back in this very small space was just to clean with everything that I've got. Mm -hmm. All the yeah. gross stuff I had left out while I was gone. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you could get away. I know the, the French government... I, like, initiated the lockdown a lot lot more strictly than other places uh it's yeah it was a lot more strict than it was here in canada you had to have a piece of paper if you ever left the house mm -hmm. <laughs> and the cops were out yeah you had to have a piece of paper if you left the house so officially there we started the period of deconfinement as of may 11th so that was like a little under a week ago so now we don't need mm -hmm. to have a paper when we leave the house, unless we're going within more than a hundred kilometers from our home mm -hmm. before it was just one kilometer. So it was essentially like getting, getting groceries and going for a run. You had to go before 10 AM or after 7 PM in cities. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really affected by that. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm sorry. What was your, what, <laughs> no, I was, was just saying question? like the I'm very tired. The French <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I was just saying the French government, you know, locked it down right. a lot more uh Right, right. Oh, yeah, and, guess, and we had a fine. So you got a fine of 135 euros if you were within if you didn't have this paper. I mean, this was all theoretical. Um mm -hmm. basically if you printed out the paper from the website, that was just that was fine. Um and if you didn't have a printer, you could write yourself a note. Literally, <laughs> like I'm authorizing myself to go buy some bread uh -huh. at the bread store. Right. Um, I mean, even as I hear myself say this, I I know that that's a very privileged. Um, that's a very privileged understanding of how the confinement was enforced because I know mm -hmm. that you know white and wealthier people were not targeted in the same way as mm -hmm. um people of color and yeah. poor areas of France like all of the suburbs which in France the suburbs are m more are lower yeah are more poor than the cities um mm -hmm. and i know there was a lot of police abuse and violence and continues to be 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, was not. Yeah, what, was like not what really about the case? What What about if you're homeless? Reasons. You just have a piece of paper that says, "Hi, I'm whoever, and I'm homeless, and I'm always on the street, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I can't like." No, no I, I don't think that you needed a piece of paper. Um, I did hear that there was one 35-year-old man, I believe he was 35, who died in police custody because he was arrested for breaching the confinement. It's so wow. absurd. But otherwise, you know, at, at one point, maybe mid-confinement, I changed confinement locations. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I feel like, are we going to get hate for this? No, we're not. This is just, see, I've been so in France where everyone Uh is really micromanaging everyone's confinement behavior that I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, I don't know if I can admit this. Anyway, (laughs) maybe like three weeks ago, I transited through Paris because I changed confinement locations and it was, I was really shocked by how empty the streets were other than people who lived in the streets. You know, it was just like Mm -hmm. such a stark Mm-hmm. visual representation of the huge homeless population there is and also of the mm-hmm. fact that they're completely invisibilized. I had been yeah. watching the news, you know, like everyone for uh-huh. um for weeks and weeks and all that they kept hammering was how empty the streets of Paris were. Yet when I mm-hmm. transited through, I, you know, the streets are not empty. Right. There there's multiple people on pretty much every street corner. Um, right. there's just homeless people that no one talks about. So, yeah. And I can't even oh. imagine the refugee camps that are on, on the outskirts of Paris. I mean, I've heard mm-hmm. the situation there. I've heard and read a lot of articles that are really heart-wrenching. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you want to talk Can- about... Sorry. What? Sorry? <laughs> I was going to ask you how that compares to the situation in Canada. Uh, in Canada, so I'm in Toronto. Um, we didn't have such a strict lockdown, although I'm sure police were, you know, roughing up people, um, you know, marginalized people, poor people, homeless people, etc. Um, but we didn't have such a a strict like you know you had to stay inside, you couldn't go this far from your house, you couldn't do this. It was more um you know, everything was shut down and you were supposed to shelter in place, but it was kind of people, uh, kind of doing more like the honor Mm -hmm. system. Um, there were like, there were cops kind of out, um, around the parks sometimes to be like, you know, don't hang out in the park or whatever. Um, but yeah, so mostly it's just been, um, people doing it because they kind of feel they have to or whatever, but yeah. So like people can get together and people have been like breaking it in, in different ways or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, now, at, like when this first happened, there was, yeah, you, like if you went outside, there was no traffic, nobody was going anywhere, nobody was walking anywhere. Um, but as as it got, you know, warmer and warmer out, mm. the sun c- came out more and more. Like, yeah. I feel like traffic now is just back to normal. Everyone's out. Um, people are still social distancing and all all of our stores are still, uh, mostly shut and, um, they're slowly being reopened, but everyone still has to social distance, but, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah. But I mean, like, of course we're just going to open it up and then shut down again, probably pretty soon. So look, looking forward to that. (laughs) It's interesting what governments took the, took the choice of, 
enforcing confinement in these um in in, in mm-hmm. these different ways um yeah I'm finding now that there's, you know, deconfinement. And so we're not obligated to social distance. There's actually, we're allowed to gather at someone's house um, for up to 10 people. Mm. Is that English? For up to 10 people? Uh, With up to 10 10 people? people. (laughs) (laughs) But not a lot of people are doing that i don't think and you know in the street people are wearing masks they're social distancing um yeah i think that and this is a, probably a whole other can of worms uh vegan worms <laughs> but but i think that if we hadn't gotten so many contradictory pieces of information at the beginning of the crisis um people would have been a lot more yeah if you explain things to people like they're intelligent empathetic responsible human beings I'm not saying they all are but i really think that if the messages had been uh clear and also just calling to our collective mm-hmm restraint for the purpose of solidarity people would have been quicker to actually social distance and wear masks and not take this thing so um not seriously but since we didn't do that then it also legitimated Mm -hmm. them enforcing these really strict um military military rules almost um but now i guess i was this is a roundabout way of saying this is mm-hmm. being confirmed for me right now that i'm seeing even with deconfinement mm-hmm. that people are i kind of expected that french people would just <laughs> like throw their masks away and go just to have kissing parties in the street but they're they're really not so like see when you when like people can't understand <laughs> Right. Yeah. If they have the information. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to shout out the new patrons. So thank you so much to Swagatha Christie and Sasha Kirillov. So if you would like to support the show, we very much appreciate it. And you can become a monthly patron at patreon.com slash vegan vanguard or give us a one-time donation on paypal on our website veganvanguardpodcast.com or please give us ratings and reviews on itunes to help us increase our reach um i always say this i love reading the reviews i love seeing like we got new ratings especially on the canadian one because we usually get stuff on the american one um and yeah just share share these things with uh, friends and family to increase our reach um so our topic today uh kind of relates to this to what marine was just talking about uh it's this idea that uh we are at war (laughs) we are at war we are at war we are at war with a with a virus so we're going to look at the rhetoric of war how it's being used uh what the implications of that are and uh yeah some some analysis of um what that obscures really and why it's important so uh marine do you want to start us off yes i think at first the idea is just to talk about how prevalent this rhetoric is although i'm sure that everyone listening has has noticed it just especially if you're living in the uk the us or or france um i think that Macron, uh, Emmanuel Macron and Boris Johnson and Donald Trump um, have Uh been uh, 
the loudest with the whole war rhetoric. Um, but yeah, I first became really acutely aware of it in the President Emmanuel Macron's uh, speech to announce confinement. Um, he said we are at war like 20 something times. <laughs> yeah, we have we to, to play, play a clip, clip of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Insert right here. Yeah. Nous sommes en guerre. Nous sommes en guerre. Nous sommes en guerre. Nous sommes en guerre. Oui, nous sommes en guerre. Nous sommes en guerre. Nous gagnerons. Jamais la France n'avait dû prendre de telles décisions. Nous sommes en guerre. En guerre sanitaire, certes, mais l'ennemi est là. Nous sommes en guerre. Nous sommes en guerre. Et la nation soutiendra ses enfants. Nous gagnerons. Yeah, it was so blatant that I think everyone noticed it. And I think some people ran with it. Um, I was actually confined with my father and his wife for the first few weeks of this crisis. And it was, I mean, they really, they really ran with it. Everything we did, they were like, mais nous sommes en guerre. Like, we are at war, Marine. And I was like, we're not at war. This is ridiculous. Um, and yeah. I have a younger sister and, you know, they would tell her like, finish your plate. Like we're in times of war. I was like, What? oh no. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I'm exposing my family like that, but um I think I think in in the immediate aftermath of that speech, I was really pissed off and annoyed by his use of that rhetoric because right away I see so clearly the patriarchal aspect of talking about this virus like we are at war. My first thought is is like the last thing we need to keep pushing is that we're at war with nature um, and that we're at war with this virus and that somehow we can conquer and combat it because this tiny, tiny invisible virus has just thrown the biggest shit storm ever in our entire world and no one understands how to control it or you know how well how, we do but like the way to control it is you know going against our capitalist system right like capitalism is is not equipped to to control it so of course we have to just like make this wartime rhetoric and pretend like oh this is a huge fight we're facing you know yeah i mean we know how we're guessing how to control it, but there's, you know, they don't know how big the second wave is going to be. They don't know if you can contract it several times. Like, I feel like time and time again, it's just been exposing how little we know. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, that was sort of my immediate reaction. Also, Emmanuel Macron used this as a PR opportunity to just have these like 45 minute speeches on television every every like 10 days <laughs> where it almost became a running joke like he oh my god the third speech he was like super tanned like we're like is this like donald trump rubbing off onto him or has he been on vacation like what is the second? yeah like what's going exactly. on exactly um, He's got his own personal tanning bed. <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, someone has not been has not been respecting consumers, have we? But mm -hmm. I I did understand the immediate 
appeal of that rhetoric or the immediate use of that rhetoric because the day before, like confinement was announced a couple days after they had announced a first smaller confinement, which was just that the schools were closing and they were asking people to social distance. And then the weekend happened and it was the first sunny afternoon in Paris, in France in a really long time. And I mean, at least I can speak for Paris, but the parks were completely packed. Like no one took it seriously. Yes, it was annoying. And yes, I understand. I mean, yeah, you can look at this from a million different ways. But I also like I understood the outrage that some people felt that people weren't social distancing. But I was also like, okay, people have known this is a thing for not even 48 hours. And we have gotten so many contradicting messages from power. And people don't trust power. Like people are, I mean, suspicion of our governments are, is at an all time high and Macron's popularity is at an all time low. And anyway, um, so I think that a couple days after sort of almost, it was framed as like, oh, well, since people aren't respecting, like the government is forced to like hit super hard, which is also something that I thought was extremely dangerous from the beginning, because by framing the accelerated spread of the virus as a fault of individual responsibility, we're obviously demonizing each other and looking away from the incredible incompetence of our politics in dealing with this issue. And a couple days after this afternoon happened where, you know, we got bombarded with videos in the media of all these people out in parks and uh, how irresponsible the French people were and how selfish they were, et cetera. (laughs) (laughs) Macron came on and he was like, you know, we are at war. We are at war. We are at war. We are at war. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and at the time it was also clear that he was using that because we need it because (laughs) They had not been taking this thing seriously. And all of a sudden, we absolutely, it was like a life-threatening need that everyone take it super seriously. And I think war rhetoric has a very um, quick way of doing that because war is in all of our collective consciousnesses um, as something to be taken very seriously. And it makes us ally behind a common goal and all the things we're going to talk about. So, but... Yeah. And then he, you know, we, he kept talking about war and, and expanding, expanding, expanding this metaphor throughout, throughout the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you guys were, um, you were hit kind of just right after Italy. Right. And so you kind of watched mm-hmm. everything go down in Italy, but then some people were still saying like, you know, Oh, it's just a flu, like Donald Trump, mm-hmm. or whatever people are saying like, Oh, it's just a flu. And I guess if you think about, you know, SARS or H1N1 and things like that, like we didn't have shelter in place for those things. So I can understand if you just hear about it and then people aren't quite taking it so seriously. Um, but yeah, this, it's really interesting that there is this kind of, you know, immediate crackdown and the we are at war stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of compare that to Canada. Uh, Trudeau hasn't been so much on the we are at war thing. He did address the House of Commons and talk a lot about, um, you know, the history of us in World War One and World War Two and all these people who, you know, courageously sacrificed to build, quote unquote, build our great nation and things like that. Um, and he actually said, you know, Mr. P- Mr. Speaker, this is not a war. But then he went on to still use war rhetoric. So he's like, this is not a war. Um, that doesn't make this fight any less destructive or any less dangerous. 
There is no front line marked with barbed wire, no soldiers to be deployed across the ocean, no enemy combatants to defeat. Instead, the front line is everywhere. <laughs> it's in our homes and our hospitals and our care centers and our grocery stores and pharmacies and our truck stops and gas stations. And the people who work in these places are our modern day heroes. So blah, 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 blah. So yeah, they're risking their health, whatever. Everyone has a role to play, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so even though maybe he wasn't so strong on the war rhetoric, I mean, it's still everywhere, like in the media and everything like that. Even just general popular discourse, like people are talking about this as, you know, we're on the front lines um, or the essential workers are on the front lines and there are heroes and things like that. And, you know, there have been so many people popping up to be like, no, no, we're not heroes. We're hostages. Like we will starve if we don't do this, but we're infecting our families. We're in danger you know we're barely scraping by and we're not getting paid enough um i think one of the only good things to come out of that like the whole rhetoric around calling them heroes is that now there's actually moves to like increase their wages <laughs> um across the board going forward of like essential workers of like grocery workers and things like that um so that that's kind of the only good thing I can see right now coming out of this war rhetoric is that in constructing these people as heroes, it's like, well, heroes deserve bad living wages and, uh, you know, they deserve actually more working rights and et cetera. So, you know, like that backfired in that instance, but yeah, I think generally, obviously, um, you know, it's it's the way that we talk about everything. Like we have a war on drugs, we have a war on poverty, we have a war on all of these you know, external enemies that are coming to get us that we must that are created combat, by us that are created by us, but that require our, you know, decisive strength and aggression to, you know, put them down, right? It really obscures what is causing the problem in the first place. And it's such a patriarchal kind of like, this is how we deal with tough situations, like we hunker down and fight. And I feel like it's pretty problematic that this idea of war and like wartime sacrifice is so normalized that people can just invoke this kind of idea and everyone kind of knows what that's supposed to mean. Like, oh, it's a war. Oh, we better hunker down. Like, this is just the way things are. As if war is just a totally normal thing mm -hmm. that that like countries engage in and it's just inescapable. And sometimes you're at war and sometimes you just have to sacrifice and sometimes you just have to die for your country. You know, <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, what you were saying earlier about this whole hero rhetoric that this war metaphor allows is is so frustrating um, and really allows the government to to offset all of its responsibilities onto workers, onto healthcare professionals. And um, here there are a lot of healthcare workers who have been talking about what a huge slap in the face that all this praise about them being heroes is when there have been cuts to to our public hospitals um, and and to their salaries for decades you know there's been like an all-out war <laughs> on on our healthcare system um, and they've literally just been, begging for something to change, like saying, you know, we're so ill-equipped. This is so dangerous. They're so overworked. They're understaffed. They're completely under, um, served. What was it? No, they're, yeah, they're under-resourced. Under 
they're under-resourced. Um, and now, you know, we have Macron every other night talking about the fact that they're heroes in, in hospitals. And in France, since the beginning of confinement, there's been this tradition, which I think is really wonderful in some ways of people going out on their balconies at eight o'clock at 8 p.m. and clapping for the healthcare workers. I mean, all the people continuing to help our country run. But it's also like, yes, it's good to clap our, for our healthcare workers, but it would be better to actually resource them and pay them well. And yeah. just thinking about like how many of those people who are clapping voted for yes. policies and candidates that outright destroyed like our hospital mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was hearing a healthcare worker, like this was on, um, this was on Instagram. I think that I saw it, but he was just like so angry and he was just like, yeah, instead of fucking clapping, like vote for, yes, <laughs> vote for a candidate that's actually going to, um, keep the public hospitals alive and help them mm-hmm. thrive and, yeah, you know, respect confinement and wear a mask and like blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this, this hero rhetoric just allows all sorts of abuses from the government to, to f- fly. Mm-hmm. And I've also been thinking about how messed up it is that in our history, just, we learn I feel like as kids, all we learn about are the accomplishments of war, you know, the accomplishments of colonizations. And, and even though, yeah, it's always like sad. There are some people die. There are some people who die and it's like a terrible situation, but we talk about our accomplishments from it and how it helped build our civilization and our culture. And I've just been thinking about how deploying the war rhetoric around the management of the coronavirus. It's like, we're going to look back on this as, you know, a terrible situation, but like, look at all the great things that the, well, I don't actually think so because I think people are, (laughs) are seeing through their game, but you know, there's been, there's been a lot of talk about how being a wartime president is historically like more, makes you more popular. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, the, a lot of leaders are sort of banking on that. Um, and like, it's working a li- like it was working a bit for Trump, but it's completely backfiring on him. I don't know how it is with Macron. It's backfiring on him too. <laughs> I know because it's just like, uh, yeah, obviously people kind of see through this, especially if if you're being affected, if you know people who are being affected, if you know people who are essential workers, if you know people who have died from this, um, which I actually do, uh, you know people don't want to hear about how you know we're at war and how this is a time of sacrifice but like we'll get through this and we'll be stronger because of it like no people people just want to be protected and they're not being protected you know under the system at all um especially in the states you know um like in canada you know, people obviously need a lot more. And, uh, you know, they've given people who lost their jobs 2000 per month, but only if it's related to COVID-19, people who are, in, are on disability or welfare get far less than that every month. And they're not eligible for this 
relief money. Um, And then people who just like, there's a lot of people who are excluded. Students are excluded because you had to have made $5,000 in the year before. So a ton of people are excluded. And, you know, it's not like we have rent forgiveness or mortgage forgiveness or anything like that across the board. So it's like all that money is just going to the landlords, you know, um, but then in the States, obviously the response has been way, way worse, uh, way worse. And so, you know, and if you're, you can also look around, like, because it's happening to everyone, uh, to every country, you can look around and be like, well, gee, you know, in Vietnam, they've had, they've had no deaths (laughs) or they've had, you know, very few deaths. What are, what are they doing to protect each other? Even in like fucking Venezuela, they've like made sure that nobody, nobody's getting fired. Everyone has rent and mortgage relief everyone's taking care of you know it's just like it really exposes i guess um the way that we are failing and the way that our our system is failing people um but then it kind of yeah makes it double down like oh we're at war um so i think it is backfiring because uh on the one hand people aren't really down with (laughs) with being sacrificed for something that could be avoidable. Um, but then also the the framing of the wartime thing and, and the use of, you know, increased like militaristic responses and surveillance and things like that are also making people feel uh, just, you know, antsy <laughs> and just really, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like claustrophobic, you know? Mm-hmm. War rhetoric is has so much resonance culturally um, because we've, I feel like masculinity has really been constructed as synonymous with going to war and um, propagating like violence and aggression and killing and our our entire culture and militaristic culture is built around like convincing men that they should give up their life to go to war. And yeah, just like it trips me up to think about that. Like our life is the most important thing that we have. And like how powerful of an ideological apparatus do you need to have to convince like such large swaths of civilians, mostly men's men to give quote unquote, give up, give up their life to to fight a war and to fight for our country. And so I think that the the war thing was also an attempt at making like all this suffering that people are going through as, you know, something that they're righteously doing um, and giving up their, their life for. It, it's interesting because now it's being used as an argument to reopen the economy in the U.S., you know, that elderly people you know, should want to give up their life to reopen the economy and see the younger generations thrive. I mean, this war rhetoric like makes no sense. Also, we're seeing that Trump is simultaneously not taking it seriously and refusing to wear masks and like none of it makes sense. But I just feel like the war metaphor is being deployed in like a trillion ways and they're just picking and choosing how it's useful to them. Um, changes every day. Yeah, it's so contradictory. Yeah, because in that same speech that Trudeau gave, he went on and on about our veterans and about how like the people who fought in World War Two or whatever, um, you know, they are now the elderly people who are living in the nursing homes and they fought so hard to protect our country. So now we have to fight so hard to protect them um, kind of thing, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you're right that, you know, obviously 
our ideas of masculinity are very kind of wrapped up in this idea of, uh, you know, fighting and aggression as like conflict resolution and just war as like the most noble thing that, you know, a, a man can do to fight for the, the fatherland <laughs> or the, the motherland or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, the ideological apparatus, it's like, yeah, our life is the most precious thing that we have, but it's all framed around, well, you're going to fight for free, like freedom is actually more important than your life, right? Like, and, and our system equals freedom. So if you care about your freedom, then mm -hmm. you will fight. Um, which is really interesting now in America because a lot of the, you know, anti-lockdown protesters are kind of using that to be like, you know, give me, give me freedom or give me COVID-19. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we, we would rather die uh, for freedom than have this, you know? Oh my goodness. Right. So, yeah. So it's being used in a, it's, it's a lot of, really interesting ways like on the one hand donald trump is saying you know we're at war against this virus and whatever um but yeah and then but then people there are being like mm -hmm. yeah but we want to fight we're fighting for our freedom though mm -hmm. and we should be able to die and sacrifice ourselves for freedom mm -hmm. <laughs> the freedom to consume but you know obviously it's like you're fighting for your freedom to consume and maybe you're fighting for your freedom to work. Like if you are struggling and you don't really understand that, you know, the government could and should be doing a lot more for you and that like, it's the system that's the problem, not the virus or the shutdown or whatever. So maybe you are fighting <laughs> for that, but for a lot of people who are fighting just to have the freedom to consume, like all those people are white, obviously. Um, and you know, the people who are being most affected by this are black indigenous and people of color, um, who are being killed by this at wildly, wildly disproportionate rates. Um, so it's like, you, you can't demand, you know, like your freedom is coming at the expense of all these other people's freedom. Like you're basically demanding that other poor, more marginalized people sacrifice themselves for your freedom to consume, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it speaks to how much we've humanized the economy. Like I yeah. think we've talked about this on the <laughs> show before, but how we talk about the economy as being healthy or unhealthy and having a pulse and needing protection. Yes. Like the economy, this like socially constructed entity, um, that life is being prioritized over like the millions of lives that would suffer for a quote unquote reopening of the economy. Like it's just... But we also talk about the health of the economy in terms of like the health of the stock market, whereas that gives us no perspective on the health of, you know, actual people within that economy. So mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It's, right. it's really been interesting, I guess, how it's been employed by both people who are supporting intense lockdown and people who are fighting against it. Right. It's like, can we, is this all we can use? This is this the only metaphor is just a war. <laughs> like no, no matter what we're doing. <laughs> We are so – we have yes. lost all of our creativity. Yeah. Like, it is wild. 
Like, come on, this metaphor does not work in a million different ways. People are like freely using it to mean what whatever they mean because it's like our imagination is so colonized by war that there's literally no other metaphor that people can yeah, use for. Absolutely. Yeah. Last thing that I'll say on on the hero that aspect of it that we're, we're that we're speaking about because I've been thinking about this a lot um, is that in France I don't know how it is in Canada um, but they have like municipalities and a lot of um, like state organizations have put out a call for people to sew their sew masks and the way that it's working for example. Um, the second part of my confinement, I was staying with my mother and, um, she has a sewing machine and was doing all these masks and, and the way that it works is that her town put out a call, um, to all the, uh, how do you call it? Like sewers, the people who could make masks, AKA like 99% women, um, to make masks and you put like, you then reported how many masks you were committed to making and then they delivered the material to your house like all of the fabric and the elastics and so on and then they came and picked it up a few weeks later and so we've just seen in France and I'm sure in other parts of Europe I know um, that I read an article about it um, that similar things are happening in Belgium Um, but really so many women have come through and been sewing masks and I was looking at my, I was just watching my mom making these masks, like spending just hours and hours and hours a day. I mean, she, and she only made like 50 masks, but man, those things take a long time to make, especially if you're not trained in making masks, you know, and she was spending 10 hours a day for a good 10 days making these masks and just made them for like the whole family. And, you know, this also highlights like how absurd the, the war rhetoric is um because it's like would we send our soldiers to go to war with like handmade <laughs> handmade guns and like jackets and like handmade masks and stuff um it's like eh, let's let's be coherent about how much our government is investing in the defense of this so-called war it's like we're putting out calls for like amateur sewers to like make masks to protect people from like a life-threatening virus um but yeah it was just such a blatant example of all the unpaid labor that women do. Um, I I know there's been, you know, really like tragic peaks of domestic violence um, during this epidemic and crisis really exacerbates like our patriarchal white supremacist system. And um, yeah, just like so, so much unpaid labor um, that, right in this particular instance is doing is being done by women to sew masks to cover up like just the incredible incompetencies of the billionaire class running our countries yeah that's like such a good point because if you think about actual wartime you think about what the u.s spends on their military or things like that, right? You think about during an actual wartime, right? Or during, like, for imperialism, the U.S. just has money to spend. It's the number one budget. Yeah, like, they have money to spend. But in terms of this quote-unquote war, it's like, well, what are we doing? We're giving 1,200 bucks to people one time. 
that's how we're fighting the war. We're like, all these people are laid off. They no longer have health insurance. So they can't actually even go get tested. They can't get treated. And if they do, um, you know, they don't have insurance. They're looking at like $40,000 worth of debt. Like this has happened to people. So is this how we're fighting the war? Like, what are we actually doing? Yeah. Like, if this is a war, if we're taking this real, real seriously, and we're fighting, like, we're at war with this virus, and we're going to come out on top of this thing, like, what are we doing to win? You know? Like, we're not even, like, uh, you know, in terms of being under-resourced, right? Like, what we need right now is ventilators and a lot of hospitals everywhere. Like that's one of the main things, like they didn't have enough ventilators. So now um, healthcare professionals are being put in this horrible situation where they have to make these decisions about who am I going to treat and who am I not going to treat? Right. And that's like fucking people up. Like you can't, you can't come away from that feeling okay. You know, about like, I, you know, <laughs> what you did during the day. Right. Um, but, you know, because of the for-profit model, like we've known, like experts have known for over 13 years that, you know, these kinds of pandemics were going to happen again and that we have already like a shortage of ventilators and that we're going to need to develop these and make them cost effective and make them so that like everyone can have them. So they've actually been working on this research for the past 13 years, but it's been completely fruitless because they passed most of the stuff over to private companies and it wasn't profitable for them to make these these ventilators so now we're having these shortages and people are dying right so it's just um yeah like nothing first of all nothing exposes like how shitty are the capitalist logics are when put into things like i mean put into everything but especially essential things like healthcare. um but then it's like if you're actually gonna believe your own rhetoric and say that we're at war like you can't you can't even invest anything like you can't give people rent and mortgage relief you can't make sure that everyone has health care and everyone has testing and and treatment you know like there's no money for that <laughs> There's not, you're just going to make people do, make women do unpaid labor to sew yeah. masks. I, it's absurd. Yeah. I was just looking up the military budget for the US in 2019. And the number that's coming up right now is $716 billion. Yeah. It's just so blatantly clear that this war rhetoric is just, I mean, it's like invoked to make us expect and tolerate just atrocious levels of suffering to give up give up our lives to work through this pandemic or whatever um but mm -hmm. it's it, it's laughable because it's like if we are at war with this virus like invest some fucking money <laughs> in helping us yeah, fight exactly. this war you know um, yeah yeah exactly yeah don't don't be asking or like, like the people the pe women for unpaid labor to make your mask and oh my goodness this is just a little anecdote but in my mom's town in particular, which is in a department called Vendée, it's on the west coast of France, um, the, the person, like the man in charge of like the municipality who sent out um, the website instructions to make the mask, the website that he sent out was called L'Atelier des Gourdes, which means like the workshops of like, um, it, it's not even ditzy. It, it's kind of like a mix between ditzy, ditzy little stupid girls and um, like <laughs> thick. It means like stupid. Um, so it was called like the workshop of the, you know, let's call it like the, the ditzes. The ditzes. Um, and my mom was like, is he fucking kidding me? Like. Wow. Yeah. 
And then he would send out emails like, we need like 1,000 more masks. All we need are your little hands to what? work, work, work in order to get the oh mask. I swear. Oh, oh my God. No. I was just like the nerve. <laughs> the, the nerve of yeah, that's, some that's people. really fucked up. Yeah. That's really fucked up. Yeah, but even like the 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 quote unquote essential workers, it's like, well, if they're on the front lines, they should probably all have PPE. Like, they should probably all have protective gear. Like, I right. go into stores. In stores here, like the owners of many of the supermarkets or stores or whatever, they don't want their employees wearing PPE because they think it'll like I don't know scare the customers. Like the customers know what's going on. The customers are wearing their own masks and gloves. You know, so like we're not going to be scared to see people in the store wearing that like I'm actually like why are they not wearing it like this is this is dangerous for them it's dangerous for everyone right um yeah just unbelievable wow so they're yeah that's interesting I didn't know that Canada was also pulling that like of not wanting the workers to wear a mask to not like scare off people and give them the wrong idea yeah, because I was wondering about it because I kept going to stores and being like, like some of them would have gloves or some of them might have masks, but it's it certainly wasn't everyone who was working who was like completely protected. And I talked to somebody or a few people who work in stores or in grocery stores or whatever, and they were like, yeah, they don't want us to because because it'll look bad for the customers <laughs> and it's it's like are you kidding me like the customers know what's going on they're coming in with their own masks and gloves <laughs> like, what are you talking about right yeah it's like if you're gonna misinform people and treat them like children who you lie to like mm-hmm. I, I mean i guess i'm talking uh, talking for france but it's like don't expect them to fucking respect the guidelines or like mm-hmm. come on you gotta yeah. expect some major, yeah, breaches there. Um, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, it's so obvious that you know if you're not actually going to treat this as if you're fighting a war, then you're just invoking the war rhetoric in order to make people feel okay with you know absurd levels of sacrifice, personal sacrifice for the good of the country, um, to make people fearful, to keep them in a state of fear so that they like look up to, you know, big daddy Mm -hmm. fearer, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, protect us, you know, um, and, you know, to keep people compliant and to keep people, whatever, uh, you know, I, I, I think a lot of it as well is, um, you know, you see in a lot of places them cracking down on, uh, you know, civil disobedience because it's like, oh, you know, that's that's going to violate the the rules or whatever, because um, they know they know that this is exposing, you know, the cracks in the system. Um, yeah. But anyway. No, absolutely. I mean, it breeds fear and just legitimizes like absurd authoritarianism. And also the war rhetoric like fuels hatred and division and distrust amongst, it's interesting because like definitely among, you know, there's obviously so much anti-Chinese racism um, that has been unleashed since the beginning of this, of this crisis. But I also feel like the, the hatred and the division trickles down to like our relationship with each other, um, just to like see everyone as like a threat. And that's been kind of hard to wrap my mind around. Like for myself, I just, I find myself overthinking like every little thing I'm doing when I am out in the street. Like I, you know, I'm like 
looking around and seeing who's wearing masks, who doesn't. Like some days I'm just like, I don't fucking want to wear a mask. Like, you know, I just want to breathe. And and then some days I'm like, oh my God, why is that person not wearing a mask? Like, that's horrible. I would never not wear a mask. You know, it's like, oh, that's not what I, you were saying like three hours ago. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting because the, the, you know, wearing a mask and social distancing is showing solidarity and responsibility and collective care. But that collective care also looks like kind of being suspicious or avoidant of each other in public spaces. And I found that really, yeah, down to the fact that, you know, we can't tell who's smiling at us. I just started doing this weird, like squinty eye thing just to like, and like bowing my head just to show people that I'm smiling, (laughs) you know? Bring back bowing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It is interesting. Yeah. So in Canada, um, you know, definitely not everyone is wearing a mask. And I think that not everyone really has access to masks. Um, and we don't have the kind of, you know, are your, are your little, your little ditzy hands not sewing you guys some? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't have, you know, uh, we, we don't have any like ditzy women in the countryside knitting, sewing us our masks. Tell the bitches to get to work. Yeah, (laughs) babe, you should tell them to get to it. They have nothing better to do. They're just sitting there, you know, just waiting to be heroes with their little hands. Like we, we demand sacrifice right now. But uh, yeah, so a lot of people I don't think can get their hands on actual medical masks. Um, I've been really lucky to get some. Um, and, you know, I've also been very lucky to have, you know, a grandma who sewed me a bunch of masks or whatever. But I think a lot of people don't have them. I think a lot of other people just um, they don't like I, I think you actually sent me something about um, it's not seen as very, you know, masculine or, uh, you know, I guess, a secure of yourself to be wearing a mask or whatever. So anyway, I see a lot of people not wearing masks. And then people kind of act like, oh, social distancing is, it's too much, or it's it's just, it's not that big a deal, right? So um, in my building, in our, in our elevators, we have, like, there's two little uh, signs placed on the floor of the elevators to be like, stand here and stand here. And it's just at the opposite end. So it's like, you should only have two people in the elevator at any time and they should be standing at opposite ends, which still isn't very far apart. It's not actually the six feet apart. It's quite close actually. Um, But when me and my partner are, you know, coming back from some, some like a walk or something and we're going um, upstairs, like there'll be people who are, who are just like, Oh, come in the same elevator like don't worry about it you know it's 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 fine don't worry you can come in if you want and like they're not wearing masks and stuff and um you know sometimes I go in uh just I don't know why but then I I'm just Mm. like oh I shouldn't have done that and then I'm just staring at them or I'm just really uncomfortable to be in this small space with them (laughs) um Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah that that article was great. Um, we can link it in the show notes. It's called Masks and Emasculation, Why Some Men Refuse to Take Safety Precautions. Um, and, you know, it starts off with describing like Trump and Pence refusing to, you know, the fact that they're refusing to wear masks totally contradicts with the whole we are at war yeah. thing because it's like, anyway, but we're not one contradiction. Um who cares you know at this point there's like 150 but yeah they talk about how appearing to quote unquote play it safe is not masculine um because you have to act like you're willing to take all the risks and you have all the answers um and you're just 
you can be like assertive and completely unafraid. Yeah. And people are pointing out now because there has been like such a, uh, I guess, trend of that happening. People are just like, you know, masks don't protect you. They protect other people and wanting to protect other people is not weakness <laughs> or, or like not masculine, you know? So that's something that I keep having to remind myself of too, when I'm in a public space, because I'm like, I'm not really afraid of getting the virus if it, but right. This is not about me getting the virus. This is about me protecting other people. But I think up until now, masks in our, again, in our like collective Western imagination has been just so associated with, first of all, like something not from our culture, you know, like, especially there's this imagination that like only countries in Asia wear masks. Um, and that it's like this sign of weakness and paranoia, yeah. you know, of like, oh my God, that's just ridiculous. Why are they wearing a mask? And I must say I had to deconstruct and am still in the process of deconstructing that. Yeah. Just like way more than I ever expected. I'm like ashamed to say how, you know, I have to like, I guess like show and talk about the fact that like, oh, I'm wearing a mask just because it's like I'm protecting other people, but I'm not that worried about getting it. But I'm just like bringing, what the fuck are you doing? This is ridiculous. Um, but I wonder if that's maybe like internalized. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I sort of relate it to like how I was, how I just loved eating meat until, you know, <laughs> became vegan and became concerned about animals but how for me it was like a sign of strength and just basically like trying to climb the ladder of what was deemed dominant and um and superior and that was masculinity and I wonder if my aversion to being seen as risk averse or being seen as someone who's wearing a mask to protect themselves like has to do with some of that internalized shit yeah absolutely i mean yeah we have such a racist idea about people who wear masks and it and it was considered like a form of weakness or yeah paranoia or just oh how silly you know what is their problem you know they must be so fearful or whatever but really it's it's a sign of deep deep respect that they actually respect the people around them and if they're ill they're they're not going to spread that to other people so right. it's actually like no this is comes from you know a culture of of actual respect and care for other people as opposed to you know not giving a flying fuck so Right. As opposed to being so like feminine and weak and and afraid. Yeah, exactly. It's like if you yeah, if this is a war, then don't you want to protect your fellow people? Right. No, it just works if you want to save the economy and infect others and hoard things. Oh, yeah. That's (laughs) another thing that the war rhetoric legitimizes. It's just like extreme hoarding and selfishness. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, like on this, the Chinese um, virus stuff and the way that it's provoking attacks. um, Yeah, I mean, I think that this is partly, uh, you know, like this is being used absolutely by, you know, neocons, like, like the US is furthering their imperialist agenda, thanks to the pandemic, right? It's kind of like the shock doctrine kind of shit. Like, you know, they're still bombing, like they're bombing Iraq, they've ramped up bombing Yemen, they've ramped up sanctions on Iran. During a pandemic, they've ranked ramped up sanctions. Um, you know, they've put out this uh, this call for people to uh, arrest Maduro for narco traffic. You know, like they're just they're they're really just forging ahead with all of their imperialist 
plans and they're using this pandemic as, you know, a great kind of stage of ground to do that. And, you know, they've been looking to pivot to China for quite a while, like even, you know, during Obama era, they started pivoting towards China because they know, I mean, this is going to be China's century, you know, they, they see the writing on the wall. Um, And this, this is all, you know, economic warfare. They're already, you know, trying to ramp up this trade war stuff Um, because, you know, very selfishly, capitalists, uh, you know, Western capital decided that it would be really, really cost effective to exploit people in China for their workforce, right? It would be really cost effective to move all of our manufacturing over there. Yeah. I was going to say, why do we have nothing to fight this pandemic? It's because we shipped it all over there. We shipped it all over there. And people are acting as if this was some grand scheme by the Chinese. You know what I mean? That like they did this. And it's just like, no, the, the capitalists did this because they wanted to make money. And now they realize that, oh, shit, you know, this is backfiring. We don't make any of our stuff like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we don't have anything anymore. We're we're our economy is bottoming out. Um China's is is growing um, and, you know, it's becoming more and more expensive to actually make things there because, you know, workers are are gaining more workers rights and things like that. You know, like people are um, people have more money there and it's just becoming more expensive for capital. So they know they see the writing on the wall. It's the same with like there's all these conspiracy theories that 5G, like 5G cellular (laughs) technology uh, causes the coronavirus. Like there's there's footage of people like this woman at one of those anti-lockdown protests who says that her two daughters are in the in her car and sitting in there and they can't come out because they're very sick but she felt the the need to come down to this protest um yeah so they're in the car because they're they're very sick and they can't come outside because of like 5g because Wait, but were they supp- oh not very sick with the corona maybe i don't know like i'm like, sure bitch, she get back tested. inside i know don't, don't go protesting yeah. with corona just so weird um but that's another thing that you know like ch- the chinese companies are way way ahead than than we are with this technology because they're investing in it um and, you know, most of the money in the U.S. that's going to this funding is is only allowing them to look at a certain, um, I guess, range, which is not as high quality because the mm. military is monopolizing the higher ranges. Yeah. So anyway, so they're way ahead of us with this technology. Their companies are obviously going to just completely outcompete the U.S. and Canada. So what are we doing? Uh, yeah, we're saying that. This is them trying to spy on us. We're trying to like ban it. So basically, like all these countries in the global south are going to get this technology before we do because we we can't really accept that like our empire is falling and the Chinese one is rising. <laughs> you know, that's a really interesting perspective, which I had not considered at all. The five G conspiracy theory is huge here at least um also you know my view is probably a little skewed because i just spent many weeks with my otherwise incredible mother who talks about this 5g conspiracy <laughs> like <laughs> a minimum of two hours a day um, oh my goodness but honestly like that's what is so hard with conspiracy theories is that all of their sources are intra like all the reference like they only reference each other yeah that's why you know it's effective but it takes like hours to try and 
and actually deconstruct because it's like every single source or argument against it is actually like referenced within it with yeah. references from within the conspiracy to um, delegitimate your your argument. And I don't know if this is true that yeah. 5G origin like Wuhan was the first ever city to be completely covered with 5G, like with fi- like to be netted. Um, is that even true? I'm like I'm not sure. I, um, but anyway, it like, seems like, like one of those I, facts I, I, that people can just like take and like run with, you know, because it's like yeah. oh, it really clicks with what we're saying. Um, but that's interesting that it might be a way to make people afraid of five G just because we don't have oh, yeah. it yet. I I didn't know that because we want our companies to develop five G and be the ones you know monopolizing that that you know market in that industry and we're like we're starting to see that like you know chinese companies are going to start out competing us in a lot of this really important these important industries and we don't want that right so there's all this talk about you know whatever it's the chinese virus we're at war with china you know you have like tom cotton and steve bannon uh mm-hmm. pointing at, at china and like the, like ramping up rhetoric like um Tom Cotton said, you know, China has unleashed this virus on the world and there will be a reckoning on the other side of it. Like, okay, all right, all right. And then they're all, and and what are they talking about doing? Moving manufacturing back to the US, right? It's like this economically economic nationalist move. And it's just like, this is way more to do with, you know, late stage capitalism and your like your falling empire than it has to do with the fucking coronavirus. Right. So then there's, of course, you have to be like, right. China did this. They unleashed it. They did this. <sighs> yeah. And and I think obviously 5G, I think like our whole technological capitalist apparatus is completely unsustainable and incredibly wasteful so like do i think it is a good idea to net to like put a 5g netting with all of the waste that that requires in terms of like all of the infrastructure that's going to go into that like no i see it as just the latest sort of like technological advancement that is is contributing to the destruction of our earth because of how wasteful it is and because of how much it encourages the exhaustion of more resources and the colonization of more space um, on the planet. Um, and then that also, like, there has been a lot of research done on the fact that, like, this coronavirus is re- is so linked with the fact that there are no wild spaces left on the Earth. Even calling it wild space, I'm like, that's... <laughs> It's problematic. It's problematic, yes. Um so is 5G going to contribute to that like deforestation and that colonization of wild space? Yes. So Yeah, I guess I don't sense, really know cuz like is it going to or is it just going to replace what we have now? I don't I guess I don't know enough about it, but No, I think there's like it requires like the building of like huge towers and, you know, every uh, i feel like every technological advancement that replaces true, the other yeah. it's like it's not actually recycling those yeah, resources that's true. it's like mm-hmm. um so yeah in that sense like do i think it's a good idea like no but i don't think anything that we're doing is true. a good idea true but this does not <laughs> yeah and then i was also saying like it's pro- you know it's contributing to global warming and the thawing of the arctic which releases yeah. viruses so yeah. like sure 5g is part of the yeah. problem um But I've also been sort of, and maybe this is just burnout or exhaustion from like this coronavirus situation, but 
I just, I'm so focused on like what is happening now and how we can go forward. I think anytime, I think there's so much energy being invested in trying to figure out like who orchestrated this? Is this like some population control orchestrated by the billionaires to kill everyone or <laughs> push vaccines with tracking devices, in, intra-blood tracking devices, or is it part of 5G or is it, mm-hmm. you know, there's like, I feel like that is a distraction and that expenditure of energy is kind of reassuring because it gives us some semblance of control. And it feeds into the war and, framing. Like, outrage. Right. Totally. But it's like, I don't fucking care right. at this point. I'm just, okay, the, situ- the virus is yeah. here. The hospitals are filled now. Like, people are dying. Like, let's, mm-hmm. you know, what are we going to do next? I'm just like, who who the, who the who cares right now where it originated and why? It's like, yeah. it is such just, a, just a, a symptom or a perpetuation of, like, all the shit that we've been doing right. already. Yeah. And our tendency to just need to point fingers and place blame just to you know, not take accountability for what it is that we need to do like here and now, um, or how maybe what we've been doing isn't really working. You know, it just, it has to be like, let's place blame. So then we can attack them and then not think about what we've done. You know, It's even like the Democrats like pointing towards, you know, Russia instead of just being like, well, we probably could have run a better campaign. Or like we probably could have like, you know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Or like, where do we go from here? Like, no, we go to point against this, you know, I don't know, it's just frustrating. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's been really dangerous for, uh, you know, Asian Americans um, who like, and obviously like no, no bigot can really distinguish whether someone is Chinese or, you know. Vietnamese or whatever, right? So everyone's just being attacked mm-hmm. brutally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, okay, great. So you're helping right now. You're helping by beating up like a, an Asian American boy mm. that, you know, like, what are you doing? And then fighting against 5G, which, you know, if it doesn't come from Chinese, the Chinese corporations, it's going to come from the American ones, but it'll be more expensive and probably less good like less less working well Mm -hmm. for you Mm um well because it's going to be more privatized right absolutely yeah um and they're gonna probably need to spend more money developing it and everything and you know it's not going to be more environmentally friendly right like it's coming like it's it's just like any other technology it's coming um so but it's, it's just a really really great way to like drum up um you know, people being upset uh, with China to people who will then, you know, be fine with ramping up like kind of neocon hawkish rhetoric about it. Mm. I saw some um, some study. This seems high, but it said that, you know, up to two thirds of Americans have an unfavorable view of China. What? Like outside of survey of U.S. adults conducted March 3rd to 29th, 2020, 66% said they have an unfavorable opinion of China. I think bitchy shit show in an episode like a few weeks ago, um, we're talking about how that was also mm-hmm. really symptomatic of racism. Like the fact that we don't make a difference between China and the Chinese government and like Chinese people. 
Like when you're reading that statistics, two thirds of Americans have a bad idea, have a negative opinion mm-hmm. of China. Like what do they, so what, like yeah. Chinese people, the, yeah. the Chinese government, like Chinese brands. Like yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't, like China is just so constructed as this common enemy, which again, obviously the war rhetoric favors. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, and like the neocons, are, I mean, in, you know, Tom Cotton and um, Steve Bannon and whoever, you know, they're really focusing on you know, whenever they say China, they're just like the communists, like it's the communist government. And like, I don't trust any communists, but least of all the Chinese communists and things the like that. The most right? communists yeah. of all. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's really, really useful for them and in their goals, right? Um, but you know what? They're they're cooked. Like you can't bring manufacturing back to the U.S., um, you know, unless you get out of the world trade or, you know what I mean? Like it's going to be way more expensive for American companies to do business in the U S they're going to have to actually pay workers things unless they just bring in, you know, foreign migrant labor, which they probably would, I guess. Um, but otherwise people don't, aren't going to want to shop for, you know, $30 socks or things like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So they're going to be not like it's not going to work. They're they're done. They're just going to. But you know, as their empire fades and economically they, um, you know, they see themselves slipping, their xenophobia and the the war rhetoric and all that is just only going to ramp up. I feel like at this point they'd rather like blow themselves up in the fight to prove that they're right than to just say like okay let's choose something else. Yes, and that's really that's really scary. Like when someone is in that kind of unstoppable mindset. I mean, that's like textbook yeah. narcissism. That's like what they do. But like, that's what white supremacy is built on, right? Like it's built on that, you know, that feeling of superiority. And if you no longer have that, then who are you? Yeah, people would would sooner die than just admit like, okay, we're not the power. Yeah, I've been reading Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Well, now I'm at the on the third volume, my Ishmael. I've been meaning to read it for such a long time because our friends at Bitchy Shit Show, Nicole and Kelly, mm-hmm. recommend it all the time. And it really was that amazing. <laughs> he says something in Ishmael that really stuck with me. Like he he talks a lot about like the story that we tell ourselves as like a culture and and how the story is what drives like everything that we're doing. Um And that our culture sees humans as like the pinnacle of evolution. Um, And so since we are the pinnacle of evolution, then logically like there is nothing else that Mm -hmm. comes after us, right? Um, It's not like we're going to evolve into something better. We're already there. And he says like we're actually like acting that out by Mm -hmm. destroying everything that by trying to destroy all life on earth so that we make that story come true and we actually Mm -hmm. are the last iteration of humans um and that's that was just like an interesting perspective i thought um Mm -hmm. because i do feel like our culture's acceptance of how how totally we're destroying the natural world Mm. and all of the other Mm -hmm. life on earth can only be legitimated by a cultural narrative that says that like we have the right to do that and we are the Mm -hmm. end of (laughs) we are the end of all yeah and then like mapping that back on to kind of u.s and china stuff and like the anglo world right like the white supremacist capitalist west thinks that we are the pinnacle of progress right we are the we're the end of history capitalist democracy Mm -hmm. in the west so to see 
mm-hmm. you know, to see others uh, rising and, you know, probably will rise ahead of us, you know, at some point, um, you know, but mm-hmm. yeah, they would rather blow everything up and blow everyone up than let that happen. It's scary. It's fucking mm-hmm. scary. Yeah. I also have a note on here that I saw in in that article that I was that I guess we didn't end up naming. So let me just say the name right here because it's a really great article. Y'all should read. It's called it's on the website The Disorder of Things and it's titled Are We at War? The Rhetoric of War yes. and the Coronavirus yes, Pandemic. I read that too. I have it here. I loved yeah. it. Um and they make a point towards the end of the article, which I thought was so interesting and tied back to our death positivity episode, mm-hmm. um, where they explain like the coronavirus is shaking the grounds of our civilizational triumph <laughs> over death. Um, and it makes like a bunch of really mm, great yeah. points on that. Like it says, like, obviously, you know, people are dying from preventable diseases constantly mm-hmm. all day, every day. Um, but there are a certain type of people and in a certain type of way that capitalism has made okay, you know, in its story. Um, but whereas this is like exposing, mm-hmm. I guess, like how, how little we know and how much our system is failing us and how powerless we are to like the, <laughs> to nature, um, and that it's really shaking mm-hmm. the premise on which our civilization is constructed that like we have conquered nature, um, and that we can yeah. manage it with complete mm-hmm. control. Yeah, no, so. absolutely. I, another point in this article, uh, they say the rhetoric of war against the coronavirus externalizes responsibilities for the fact that our system is ill-equipped to protect people. For minority groups and poor people, this is not news, but for the middle class and wealthy white people, it is, right? So like this mm-hmm. virus is shaking our the story that, you know, we like quote unquote tell ourselves about ourselves because, you know, like the white middle class are finally waking up to the fact that you know they are vulnerable or they're feeling vulnerable in ways that they've never felt before right yeah no no i love everything you're saying and i'm just like oh my god wait there's another paragraph that i want to read um i was thinking like when i came across this article i was like oh maybe we should just like read this on the show because it's so good it covers all the points (laughs) um but It talks about how despite um, the realities of climate crisis, we're really not acting fast enough and people are in complete denial of the problem. And um, it's talking, yeah, it says like scientists keep predicting how many years human life on earth can continue as is unless we reverse the trends 20, 30, 13 or 50 years. And yet we remain in denial of our own mortality Mm -hmm. and like, I think that's so true, especially amongst like privileged, rich, um, yeah, rich humans. Um, and, and this ties back to the whole like preppers movement, which we discussed in an episode two, right? Mm-hmm. It's like we're not gonna die, and we're literally we're going to outsmart yeah. every everything and everyone and just build these like <laughs> luxurious bunkers underground, which like mm-hmm. sounds like the fucking worst thing in the world to me. But yeah. anyway, um, so I think that this denial of our own mortality is like such an important cornerstone mm-hmm. of this really destructive 
um, white supremacist capitalist system. And that the coronavirus, since it's affecting everyone, although with a lot of inequalities, is is kind of shaking that. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just so interesting, yet so predictable that mm-hmm. the only way that it can be made sense of is by framing it as a war that we are also fighting and going to triumph over. Yeah. Like we have to deny our own mortality under the system because our mortality makes the whole point of like white supremacist capitalism moot, like like irrelevant, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Because if you don't have an infinitely long time to continue to amass wealth and power and amass wealth and power, like if you're just going to die and you can't take it with you and it's meaningless and you're just dead and gone and everything that you've built is gone, then like, what is, what is the point of what you're doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So we have to deny that. And then, so people being faced with that, although, I mean, really, it, it really is. Um, I mean, maybe, I don't know about what it's like in France, but I mean, uh, in the U.S., Canada doesn't have a lot of great statistics uh, related to race and COVID, but, you know, it's it's absolutely, you know, the most marginal, it, you know, it's disabled people, it's um, Black, Indigenous, people of color who are disproportionately, you know, dying from this. But, um, you know, certainly... There's a lot of a lot of white people going out to these protests, so I, I have to imagine that a lot of them are getting the virus as well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. A small thing on that <laughs> on that question that you just asked before: um, France doesn't isn't allowed to have racial statistics or race based wow. statistics. Um, so even though we can chart like gender inequalities. <sighs> We are race. We are we are just a a country. A, we we have countrywide color blindness, so those statistics do wow. not exist. Yeah, it's because we don't Lucky have racism here, babe. It's that's yeah. so terrible. I think you mentioned that before. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's yeah. mostly what I wanted to talk about. I think at the end of that same article, um, they have some really good quote, um, just pointing to, you know, we've talked before in a previous episode with the Bishy Shit Show about, you know, capitalism is the virus, right? Um, and this is really exposing that. So um, they say that, you know, modern day, modern day internet wisdom says that if you're in conflict with someone and they are unaware, then you are in conflict within yourself. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the virus is not, you know, actively aware of us, right? It's not <laughs> trying to destroy us mm-hmm. in any way, shape or form. Yeah, absolutely. So um, they say, you know, we're at war with ourselves and the systems that we've created. And we hate that this virus is stripping naked in front of us the limitations of our systems, political, economic, social, um, and of beliefs. Um, and it kind of goes goes on from there. You know, we hate that our health system cannot save us as we wanted and expected. Uh, we hate that all the screen time is not actually a good substitute for human touch and company. <laughs> um, we hate that we have to trust un- untrustworthy politicians to get us through this. Um, we hate that the dreams that we built on the shaky grounds of our sick systems are becoming perverse fantasies. Uh, we hate that we have to relinquish again our freedoms and liberties for the fantasy of security you know so mm. yeah i just thought that was really really great um um mm-hmm. is there anything else you wanted to talk about i think that's it 
for me. Yeah, it was so fun to talk with oh you. Oh my god, it was so great this. to have you on an episode again. I love this. I hope I hope the listeners enjoy it as well. Let us know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Use your 5G yeah. to let this us know. really fun. Use your 5G to let us know and yes, rate thank our you. podcast. <laughs> on Canada yes. and France. Yes, France iTunes, iTunes as well. I can't I can't I'm really tired. Yeah. So I feel like I keep just saying words that don't make sense. I'm like on Canada and France. I no, it makes sense. I, it yeah. makes sense. Good. Good. good yeah. Well, we'll let you go to bed. Thanks. Yeah. Much but it was needed. so great to talk to you. Love you muchly. Yeah. It was great to talk to you too. Mm, love you muchly and, as well. Uh, yeah. So long until I, I know. come visit you. That is, Yeah. That's that is the yeah. really shitty part. I have so many people who I love mm. who don't live in this country. I know. Anyway, small well, things. Small things. Small problems, but yeah, that does suck. But yeah, anyway, um, thanks everyone for listening, Cheers. and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Cheers.